2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay, I'm one of the producers, and today I'm the host as well. Our politics of expertise theme this week has so far taken us on a journey through legal systems. And today we take a look at what might happen next. It sounds like sci-fi, scanning people's brains to detect criminality. That was pretty much the plot of Minority Report. We're doing these themes each week to introduce you to our back catalogue before we launch our new season on September the 18th. So if you're enjoying listening to Darts and Letters on New Books Network, go find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe or follow. For now, here's This Is Your Brain on Trial. Gordon is still off doing PhD stuff, so you've got me talking about brains and law this week. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Kobo. We've got some real minority report stuff in this episode. Scanning your brain to predict if you're likely to commit violence, for example. But before we get there, I think we need to understand why that could be so appealing to forensic scientists. It's because the science that's used in the legal system currently is kind of inconsistent.
0: During the past two weeks, on a scale of one to four, how much or how often have you been bothered by the following problems? Little interest or pleasure in doing things. Feeling down, depressed, or hopeless.
3: If you've ever told your doctor about any kind of mental health issue, you'll recognize this. You fill out this form which tries to describe deeply personal issues in an entirely depersonalized way. That's deliberate. Feeling
0: more irritated, grouchy, or angry than usual. Thoughts of actually hurting yourself. Feeling nervous, anxious, frightened, worried, or on edge in the
3: 1970s psychiatry was in crisis there were a few studies that came out which suggested that diagnoses were pretty much just based on vibes a social psychologist called david rosenhan published a study called being sane in insane places he got people to pretend to have a mental illness to see if they'd still be admitted to psychiatric institutions and they were the study's legitimacy is questionable In 2019, investigative journalist Susan Callahan published a book showing the whole thing to be fraudulent. But in the 1970s, the damage was already done, and it's not like it was the only study in this area either.
2: Bruce Ennis, who was part of the new mental health bar that emerged in the late 60s, early 70s, published a law review article in the California Law Review, and its title was On Flipping Coins in the Courtroom, Psychiatry and the Presumption of Expertise.
3: This is Andrew Skull. He's a historian of psychiatry.
2: And it pointed to all these studies about how psychiatrists couldn't agree on diagnosis and said, if they only agree 50% of the time, hey, a monkey flipping a coin can do that. They shouldn't be treated as expert witnesses.
3: So that's clinical psychiatry and forensic psychiatry both being shown to be untrustworthy.
2: The notion that psychiatrists couldn't tell if somebody was mad or sane suddenly explodes into the public consciousness. And the American Psychiatric Association panics, forms a task force to revise its way of diagnosing patients, and it comes up with DSM-3, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, third edition. That's the one that changes the way psychiatrists diagnose. And the whole stress is not on making sure that the diagnoses correspond to something real in the world, what it wants to do is make sure that psychiatrist A, B and C, confronted with the same patient, will attach the same label.
3: The DSM is where that assessment you heard at the start comes from, and it's not without issues of its own.
2: So what you do is you create lists of symptoms, you diagnose according to symptoms because you don't know the underlying cause, and if you have five of nine symptoms, then you can be called somebody suffering from major depression. Or if you have six of 10 symptoms, different ones, you'll be diagnosed as schizophrenic. Here's the problem. Actually five of nine in the case of major depression is five of 10, because one of the symptoms is you're sleeping too much or you're insomniac. Okay. So it's sort of catch 22, one or the other. <laughs> now, So what that means is somebody could be diagnosed as having major depression and someone else, and they don't share a single symptom.
3: We'll have more of Andrew later on. He's going to give us the long history of madness, which is gloriously mad itself. So we have a bad system replaced with a slightly less bad system. But the DSM is still only one of a surprisingly large number of techniques that might decide someone's fate in court. More on that in a bit. And it's one thing to fill out that form when you're with your doctor, but imagine if your freedom or custody of your children depended on how you answered those questions.
0: Feeling panic or being frightened. Unexplained aches and pains.
3: They boiled down very difficult to describe conditions to numeric values. The picture here is one of psychiatric experts repeatedly trying to prove their field is accurate and scientific and therefore relevant. And I'm not here to try and debunk the entire field of psychiatry. It is a valid part of medical science, but it's also one that's focused on the part of the body that we know the least about, the brain. So that of course makes everything more murky. Murky is not what we want in our legal systems. In the US and Canada, justice is supposed to be done and to be seen to be done. When a judge or jury is presented with a diagnosis and told it's scientific, that gives it this sense of legitimacy that it may well not deserve. It creates a smokescreen. Because the truth is that there are a shockingly large number of entirely unscientific forensic psychiatric methods still being used in the legal system, and they often go unquestioned. So why wouldn't courts turn to methods that appear more scientifically sound, like scanning brains and using machine learning to figure out which brain is going to be violent? I'll be talking to researchers who study psychiatry, neuroscience, and how they interact with justice, after this.
0: You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast, You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca.
3: One of those researchers I mentioned is Tess Neal. She's an associate professor of psychology at Arizona State University.
4: I am a clinical psychologist by training and also a forensic psychologist. So I'm trained to evaluate and diagnose people's mental capacities and whether they might have a mental illness and how that might influence their behaviors, including in legal settings.
3: Tess is one of the authors of a study called Psychological Assessment in Legal Contexts. Are courts keeping junk science out of the courtroom? So before we move on to the emerging field of forensic neuroscience, I called Tess up to figure out what psychiatry in the legal system looks like right now.
4: We looked at the quality, the scientific quality of several hundred tools, assessment processes that psychologists might use and bring into court as evidence, we found variation in that quality. Some of them are really good and have strong scientific underpinnings that I would stand by. Others are really poor and should be screened out of court and should not be admissible as evidence. Then the second question that we answered was, are the courts calibrated to that? Are they recognizing the stuff that's not good scientifically and are they screening it out? And the answer is clearly they are not. The evidence is rarely challenged and what is challenged tends to be the better quality tools and not the worst quality tools. And part of that might just be frequency. Better quality tools are used more often and might therefore face a challenge. Just just given base rates, they might face a challenge because they're used more often. But unfortunately, the things that are really poor quality, that clinicians agree as a whole shouldn't be admitted into court, that the evidence scientifically show is not good, still sometimes make it into court and the courts aren't screening it out.
3: So do you have an example of like some junk science that makes its way into courts?
4: Yeah. Generally speaking, there is a class of tools, a psychological assessment approach that is based on sort of an early stage of psychology. It was called psychodynamic theory. And some of these tools, they're called projective assessment tests. And they are, when I gave the example earlier about, you know, you might be shown an ink blot and asked to tell the clinician what what it looks like to you. Or you might be shown a picture and asked to explain what's happening in the picture, tell a story about what's happening in the picture. You might be asked to draw a house, a tree, and a person and how you draw that, the clinician might make some inferences about you as a person. Those are called projective tests. Generally speaking, this class of tools, the projective assessment tools are more subjective and less scientifically reliable than more quote-unquote objective tools. They're called objective tools in the field, but basically there's just less discretion for the clinician. So for example, um, the MMPI or the PAI, people might have heard of those. Those are Um, These are basically a series of true and false statements, like, I'm a person who likes to read Popular Mechanics magazine, true or false, and you answer, you know, a couple hundred of those, and the pattern of your responses has been scientifically studied so much with some of the really good tools that the pattern of your responses can be interpreted with some pretty serious reliability and validity indices The Rorschach inkblot test is an example of one of the former, of the projective tools that we know from this project is one of the most commonly used assessment tools in legal settings by psychologists. And this tool has been the subject of significant debate in the field. There is a core group of followers who, you know, have been using it and really working on the science of it for years, and then there's kind of a core group of critics who have been talking about how it's not reliable. So on the Rorschach itself, even though it's a projective test, there is some nuance that an educated attorney or judge or clinician would know how to proceed with that. For other tools like the house tree person that I mentioned, you know, draw a house, draw a tree, draw a person, let me interpret that. That is not scientifically reliable should not arguably be admitted into court
3: it sounds like this isn't black or white whether pun not intended mm-hmm. this isn't black and white whether they're um should be admissible in court it, there's a you kind of have to know a bit about how the thing works and where the thing would work properly yes which is quite a nuanced thing to have to be able to understand and judges are generalists necessarily. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of the problem that they're going to be handed this and put, even someone could say like, you have to take all these things into consideration, but they're not experts in that one area. So they might just go, Oh, well, it's it's roughly accurate. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the takeaway? They're almost like a CSI effect kind of thing. Well, they say it's roughly accurate. So let's go with this.
4: I think to date, that might be the issue going forward. But up to this point, I think, on the whole, it looks like judges are Trying to be conservative on these decisions about admissibility. So, what they, what a lot of the cases that we read that, you know, where there was evidence that these psychological tools were trying to be admitted by experts who were bringing them in. And when they were challenged, the judge usually didn't screen it out on admissibility grounds. But often the judge would say, these issues that are being brought up are relevant, they need to be heard by the juror, and they should go to wait. So these criticisms, these nuances, we think the jurors are capable of using that to reduce the weight that this tool might use. But I don't want to, as a judge, I may not want to totally rule it as inadmissible, but I do want the information about the criticisms and whatever to still come in through cross examination and whatnot. There's also the issue of precedent. So particularly for the Rorschach, it's been admitted so many times that you know I think judges might be... They have the evidence that it keeps coming in, so they would. I think they they would feel compelled to have a really good reason for not letting it in. On some of the other things that are less frequently used, that precedent issue may not be so heavy, but I know has like at least for the Rorschach, that's part of probably what they're considering.
3: And how good are juries at understanding that this isn't black or white?
4: We've done some studies in our lab, and I know there's been other studies of this, and and largely it's been. With the context of forensic science evidence and you know, not specific to psychological assessment, but generally speaking, when there's complicated scientific evidence, how well are juries calibrated, jurors calibrated to the quality of that evidence? The work from our lab shows that individual differences between jurors themselves, so jurors who are more interested in science, who have higher sort of numerical reasoning abilities who have more scientific reasoning understanding, like understand how science works, they are better able to differentiate the quality of evidence and weigh it better. Jurors who are less interested in science, who have less sort of numeric skill, they do a a worse job at being calibrated to this. So, you know, the implications of that are that maybe the court wants to select for jurors who have these capacities but then there's implications for whether this is a jury of your peers, right? So if the general public on the whole doesn't tend to understand this stuff well, should the jury really be representative of the entire public or should it be a jury of people who can understand the complications of scientific evidence? And that's another hard question.
3: Yeah. It sounds like there's a friction between sort of A democratic process and a technocratic process there, but one that might be more accurate, but less democratic, you know?
4: I have never had that thought before. And I love the way you just framed that. I will be thinking about that for a while now. And I I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I don't have a take on it, but I think it's a really interesting reflection.
3: You know, experts get things wrong, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a danger of uh, slipping too technocratic and not democratic enough. And then the experts are still not doing the job they're supposed to be. So if we then turn our jury into just a table of experts, the experts that might end up in a sort of self-reinforcing loop kind of thing where Mm -hmm. they keep perpetuating systemic biases and things like that, right?
4: I have a couple thoughts about that, actually. One is that there has been, there, you, you may have interviewed people who, you know, Jennifer Manukin and others who have written about, about the need for a stronger research culture in forensic science and probably also in psychology, which is my own background. And the idea being that if you have a stronger, if you have practitioners who have a stronger scientific foundation to what they're doing, hopefully there will be less of a guild mentality where it is this kind of self-perpetuating, non-skeptical protective body who's you know looking out for its own interests. If you're coming with a scientific foundation as a profession as a as a group of practitioners, it's supposed to be a skeptical process where you're not even if you get it wrong, it should be self-correcting, right? There should be people criticizing you, you should be open to that. You should be understanding that that's how the process works. And if that is how the the core of how the 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 group of experts are working together to try and get things right, then it's not so much of a problem. But if it is you know, a guild uh, which has been part of the criticism lobbied at some of the forensic science disciplines, then you face that problem.
3: I'm curious about bias in forensic scientists themselves, like particularly research into adversarial allegiance. Can mm-hmm. you tell me what that means?
4: Yeah, this is really fascinating there have been some robust scientific studies of this phenomenon so the idea is in our system here in america and other adversarial court systems we have an adversarial process which means that there are two sides and each side is vying to tell the best story they possibly can based on the evidence available and then there's an arbiter a third party who has to decide which of those two parties put forth the best case and then that case basically wins is kind of the way the system works but In the two party adversarial process, we have. When an expert is hired by one of the adversarial parties, the risk of bias is that they get absorbed into the sort of mindset or the mind frame, the perspective of that side of the case. This is a problem because an expert, according to many, many professions, many professions have ethics codes that guide the behavior of professionals in those disciplines, you know, this is applicable to all kinds of disciplines, accounting, forensic science, psychology, medicine. Professionals are supposed to be objective. They're supposed to adhere to the evidence available before them, and it should not be colored by whether they were hired by the defense or by the prosecution or whatever. So the issue of adversarial allegiance is, are professionals, are experts able to be objective, regardless of who hires them, and find, you know, provide the same opinion no matter who's paying the the tab? Or are they influenced by whoever hired them? And there's three pieces of relevant evidence about this. One is that mostly it's pretty clear that experts think that they're able to be objective on this. They think they're not swayed by whoever is kind of footing the bill, no matter what. That's piece of evidence number one. Piece of evidence number two is that they don't intend. I guess it's related to that. They don't intend to be biased, right? They're not. Usually, they're not explicitly willing to, you know, go one way or the other. That said, there is a small number of experts who are sort of known to be hired guns, who are more willing to testify for one side versus the other and kind of find evidence for that's sort of built in sort of a biased way for one party. That's fairly rare. The third. Finding, if you will, which is the most compelling, is that even when experts think that they're objective and they're not swayed by this adversarial pressure, they are. So there was a very, very compelling study by uh, Dan Murray, Mark Boccaccini, Lucy Garnera, and their team, published back in 2013. They had a big NSF grant to do this project, and they did an experiment with three groups where they had real experts, real psychologists who were hired to do an evaluation, and they were either hired by the defense, the prosecution, or neutrally by the court, or they didn't actually, it was a blind condition. They didn't know who they were hired by. Importantly, because it was an experiment, all of the information that they were actually exposed to was exactly the same. So they didn't get any new information for any of those conditions. They were deceived to think it was a real case. They didn't know they were in a study. And then they had to score like the PCLR, which is the psychopathy checklist. They had to score a static 99, which is a violence risk assessment tool. So the findings showed with fairly large effect sizes, or at least moderate effect sizes, that the clinician's scores on those tools and their opinions were affected by who they believed they had been hired by. So if they believed they were hired by the defense, the scores were lower on the risk issue. If they believed they were hired by the prosecution, the scores were higher on those issues. On these ostensibly objective tools and when they asked the people in the study do you think you were influenced they said no they thought that they weren't
3: how do you feel about the use of psychological assessments in the judicial system then
4: oh that is a really good question (laughs) this is something i struggle with because this is who i am right i am a clinical forensic expert i this is my field this is my profession and I know that what we do can be valid, it can improve justice. However, I know that in some ways what we offer, it has some of those characteristics of a guild rather than a scientifically based profession. So I think I see room for improvement and hope for a high quality body of services that we can we can provide to the court, but I see A lot of problems and need for real improvement on the whole for what we're offering. I would also say that I think most professionals in this field want to be good at what they're doing. So I I think and I hope that there is a spirit of openness to getting better. And that's what I'm offering. So I am a critic. I am sort of damning of the field in some ways. But it's from the perspective of wanting things to get better and believing that it can get better.
3: That was Tess Neal, Associate Professor of Psychology at Arizona State University and one of the authors of the study Psychological Assessment in Legal Contexts, A Court's Keeping Junk Science Out of the Courtroom. We'll put links to that and her work in the show notes. you can see why there's a desire for a more reliable, scientific way to assess the mental state of people caught up in the legal system. This is where we're getting into the Minority Report stuff, by the way, so buckle up, we're talking forensic neuroscience. More scientific means more complex, harder for generalists like judges and juries to understand. It's also harder for journalists like me to understand, but luckily we have someone on the Darts and Letters team who does know their stuff.
0: Yeah. Hi. Uh, So my name is Roland Nadler, and I am, when I'm not a Darts uh, research intern, I am a PhD candidate at uh, UBC in law, and I study the intersection of law, neuroscience, and neuroethics.
3: I want to be clear here the techniques we're about to talk about aren't necessarily junk science. But after hearing that interview with Tess Neil, you know that junk science does make its way into courtrooms, especially when judges and juries find it hard to understand. And with something as nebulous as the brain, it's going to be particularly difficult to figure out what is accurate and what should be admissible, reliable evidence in court. There are already examples of neuroscience being used in the legal system, one of the less controversial ones is using neuroimaging to assess brain injuries in civil suits. There are other more experimental
0: methods too. One of the major areas of research here is to detect if a person who is seeing an image or, or another kind of stimulus recognizes it from their memory, right? If they have that little hit of recognition that you, one gets in their brain when, when seeing a familiar thing and then like, I've been there or I know something about that. The idea for a legal use of that is that you might be able to show a person an image of something that only an individual who's guilty of the crime accused would know, and look for that, that hit of recognition in the brain. But the really kind of dystopian method is called MVPA. So the idea of multivoxel pattern analysis, which I should be clear, is not being used in courts yet, but is being researched in ways that make it predictable that there will be attempts to use it, is that researchers compile a big data set of whole brain scans of many people that are then linked to an outcome of interest. So when we're talking about predicting violence, that outcome would be recidivism. And what happens from there is that this enormous amount of whole brain activity data is fed into a machine learning algorithm that, in its algorithmic way, looks at the entire compilation of datasets and makes this very gestalt, almost vibes-based inference. Of course, that's not technical scientific language. (laughs) But from the outside looking in, (laughs) it is about as easy to interrogate why these algorithms come to the judgments they come to, as it is to try and ask somebody who's just made a decision based on pure vibes, well, what led you to that, right? There's a certain ineffability there. And from there, once the algorithm is trained on that, it's then able to be shown, again, in big scare quotes, the brain data of an individual that is asked to make a classification about in order to predict, in this case, whether they'll engage in further violence.
3: Let me try and get my head around this properly. What is being proposed or what there is research being done into is even before we get to a trial, scanning someone's brain and making a decision saying they have markers that show they are more likely to commit crimes or be violent based on this brain scan, and then decisions about whether they're kept in detention or how they are sentenced perhaps later on are made based on that scan.
0: That's the envisioned use. Yes. And to be clear, this is continuous with widespread practices that are already in the criminal legal system. We already are engaged in the United States and Canada in many jurisdictions in an entire system of using risk assessments that rely on structured professional judgment or on actuarial data to make those kinds of predictions about who is a risk for future violence or, or recidivism? The idea behind bringing neuroscience into it is principally animated by this sense that, well, in fact, the accuracy of the methods we're currently using is rather poor, unacceptably poor. And the promise that uh, we might be able to make more accurate predictions within that system using uh, data from the brain is what is driving this envisioned use.
3: You think that MVPA and other neurological imaging will make its way into the courtrooms. How soon do you think that's likely to happen?
0: I wouldn't be surprised if we began to see a rising tide of attempts in the next five to 10 years. And part of that is because the best scholarship rounding up the state of the art in these lines of research are are pointing to this idea that, insofar as we can overcome technological limitations to these techniques, that that's that we are closing in on that. What remains to be seen is whether there are also fundamental biological limitations that even improving the technique will never address. When it comes to memory detection, one of the main ones is this idea that memory is a reconstructive process, and therefore, if somebody really genuinely believes that they remember a given thing, it may well be that that's indistinguishable from MVPA's point of view from actually remembering a true experience. So it remains open to argue that these will never be up to snuff. That said, I think especially in the risk assessment uh, and future dangers in this context, there's tremendous almost hydraulic pressure to bring this in.
3: So on paper, that all sounds well and good. We can look at someone's brain and figure out, oh, they're more likely to be violent or not. But what we actually have to do to do that is we have to have something to compare it to. So we might have an image of their brain, but if we know there's electrical activity happening in a certain part of the brain, All we can know is that there's electrical activity happening in a certain part of the brain. So we need a data set that shows what that electrical activity means. So what are they comparing these scans to, to figure out if you might be more likely to commit violence or whether you should be kept in custody or whatever?
0: So the way that this works in the realm of multivoxal pattern analysis is essentially to offload that work to the algorithm. What is happening with with a technique like this is that you're relying on a full brain scan of the individual, not looking specifically at any one area or anatomical structure that is of interest, but just feeding the entire data sets into a machine learning algorithm that is trained on many prior instances of, here were brains that either did or did not recidivate according to the criteria. And from there, the algorithm then shown... A fresh brain scan is able to predictively, with some known level of accuracy, make a judgment about, oh, this brain fits into the likely to be dangerous category or does not.
3: So with machine learning, it's looking for patterns to compare to, right? And there will be patterns there that aren't there because one type of brain or person is inherently more likely to commit violence, but because of systemic societal injustices. Like the algorithms going to see far more indigenous brains and people of colors brains because those people are more likely to be criminalized because we have systemic racism in the justice system. So am I right in thinking that basically this is potentially going to keep exacerbating and continuing that systemic injustice?
0: This is indeed the danger, and and this critique has been made by a number of scholars, including Ben Green at the University of Michigan, uh, who wrote a paper on the false promise of risk assessments, not even bringing in the context of neuroscientific evidence, just in terms of adding a a kind of machine learning approach or, or other even simpler algorithmic processes to this kind of risk assessment. And the heart of the matter really is that, yes, what it is to make an accurate prediction about an individual's risk of violence is to sort of freeze and hold constant the social factors that actually give rise to so much uh, of behavior in society including harmful and criminalized behavior so the very idea of accuracy ends up being this filter that helps the gaze of the system hive and funnel away social context
3: yeah and are researchers aware of this are they trying to correct for that systemic bias
0: The concern, I think, is less that any individual researcher is going to be heedless and more that these are techniques that we are feeding into a system that we already know misserves our ends in society in many ways, right? That given that this is a criminal legal system that has these strong imperatives towards incarceration and risk management, a system whose view of of, of the ideal outcome is so narrowly focused on harm being prevented, with increasing pressure from these kinds of techniques, that the good understanding or or good intentions of of any actor in the process will tend to drop away because the system is structured to produce certain kinds of outcomes.
3: Judges are going to be conservative because they're terrified of uh, accidentally letting someone go free and then they continue to commit a crime. So are they going to lean quite heavily on this kind of method as justification for that? Is that what you're saying?
0: It may be that it is leaned on as justification. It may also be that it serves this effect of essentially taking the decision away from human judgment, right? That because we want to be evidence-based and unbiased in our practices, that there can be an inclination to look at the output of a machine and to say that, well, this settles the analysis. For me to, to jump in with my further intuitions is only going to spoil what's an otherwise objective and fair process. Of course, what that misses is that attempts to build greater objectivity and fairness into a system are only going to work if the actual goals and ends that it's serving and and attempting to produce are themselves ones that are actually socially valued and desirable.
3: Yeah, I think this is a good point maybe to sort of turn to the conversation about how this might make courts and the justice system,
0: less democratic? I think it's, of course, important to first note the elephant in the room, which is that the judicial branch of government is the least democratic one by design, that it is meant to operate in a way where it can and does produce unpopular decisions that the people who might be on onlooking uh, its operations don't agree with. That's good and that's by design. But that doesn't mean that there aren't democratic aspirations built into the way that we run our courts uh, and our legal system. We have the justice system operate presumptively in an open and public way where people can attend and spectate and journalists can disseminate information. We have the entire institution of the jury, which is meant to assemble members of the community to engage in the fact-finding process so that it's not just the state saying what is true. And in broader, more ambient ways, public opinion, especially through politics, especially at uh, higher appellate levels of judging, does shape the presumptions and attitudes and intuitions of judges. One of the things that I fear about a legal system that wholeheartedly embraces neuroscience for things like finding facts or, or determining dangerousness is that it's more likely to be a legal system that operates in a self-justifying way, that is just the state serving what it takes to be the important ends of crime control and minimizing risk, and in that way continues to spit out outcomes that actually the public, if they were in a position to carefully track what is going on and to puncture through uh, this veil of expertise and uh, computerized decision-making— might well be horrified by. And, and indeed, this ties into uh, existing critiques uh, of many of the outcomes that the criminal legal system spits out that are horrifying to many people. Uh, it's, it's not an accident that the analysis I mentioned uh, from Professor Green is, is written from a normative framework of, of prison abolition, right? If your goal or, or your policy preference is decarceration, making our predictive systems for violence more accurate is going to have a small benefit in terms of cutting down on those false positives set against a much larger sort of systemic reinforcement of the overall practice.
3: Yeah, because I mean, if you aim your justice system and your legal system entirely at uh, managing and minimizing risk to victims, you're forgetting, I guess, that the other point of the legal system is to keep innocent people free, right?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Not only is the point to keep innocent people free, the, the point is to run a system that treats the people who come into contact with it as humans, as citizens, rather than as a collection of essentially walking nodes of risk that the state relates to in terms of how best it can manage them. And Part of what I'm especially interested in highlighting is that that cost in the humanity of the system can also be thought of in terms of, well, the less human it is, the less accessible it is, the less that we are in a position to understand it, to challenge it, and to redirect it towards better social ends.
3: I was talking to Tess Neil earlier in the day, and um, the topic of adversarial allegiance came up. And when we have what I imagine could well be quite expensive as neurological imaging and neuroscience in the courtroom, what you may end up having is that the side with the most money is the one who can hire the best neurological scientists, right? Is that something that uh, is likely to happen or is this something that would be maybe assigned blind by the court so that that wouldn't happen?
0: The way that the existing dynamics of who has the advantage in the legal system interact with uses of psychology and potentially neuroscience is very concerning to me. So it's worth saying first that in the context of of sentencing and and some of the other uses of of risk assessment, you don't necessarily have as much of the classic battle of the experts image that you think of when talking about Say neuroscientific evidence being introduced in a trial, right? Um, so, in the sentencing context, you often have the rules of evidence relaxed to a greater extent, and there's not the same uh, reliance on on dueling experts. But in situations such as maybe using neuroimaging for memory detection, where where you do have one party introducing the evidence and the other resisting it, you immediately run headlong into into those problems of resources and access to expertise. Those in civil cases tend to be stacked in a way that heavily favors the party with more money, and in criminal cases, in ways that favor the state. The state has a repeat player advantage, right? It can establish these pretty entrenched networks between prosecutors, police, and and forensic scientists generally in a way that allows them to be more familiar and to give the techniques that they use, whether they are well validated or not, this patina of familiarity to the criminal legal system and and to the legal decision makers uh, in charge of it like judges. And it's that asymmetrical advantage in the criminal context that has prompted a, a number of, of, of scholars in the field of evidence-based forensics to argue that that the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt can end up being undermined uh, by the worryingly low frequency with which it's actually established that forensic techniques are valid and reliable for the purposes that they're used in. A good example here is, is actually uh, to go back to the idea of using neuroimaging to detect whether a person remembers a given stimulus. It's possible to do neuroimaging studies that can show this is accurate in laboratory conditions. But in order to actually make the inference from that to, yes, this method of neuroimaging is still accurate in a real high stakes legal situation, you would have to do impossibly unethical research to verify that. As a result, there's always this inferential leap to be made for a technique like that uh, for actual uses in high stakes legal proceedings.
3: How common is it that people know to challenge the scientific method or any neuroscience that's used in a courtroom? Do people even know that they
0: should be challenging it? The evidence that we have points to a pretty dismal picture here, that the typical story uh, in the criminal context is one of overworked or under-resourced or overborn criminal defense attorneys who are not raising challenges to the use of risk assessments. That's a, a trend that may continue if those risk assessments start using neuroimaging, though maybe One small hope is that the sense of scientific sophistication uh, around brain imaging is maybe high enough uh, that people start getting the idea to push back on it more. That said, I think perhaps the greater fear and the likelier outcome is that the idea of information about a person's brain just ends up overawing participants in the system even further because when we think of making a claim about the brain, I mean, that's the the sort of deepest, most self-defining part of a person, right? And so if the state has a process that can look at that part of you and make a judgment about you, in a way, what you're appealing to is is this intuition that people have, this, this sort of biological essentialism that says, oh, well, we know something true and deep about this person thanks to having had this process that gives us a glimpse inside their brain. And the fact that it is highly automated and and has this sort of aura of of bureaucratic knowledge about it that makes it hard to delve into is a major red flag, but one that can get left aside because it's brains.
3: How do we keep the judicial system from turning too much into technocracy then?
0: This is certainly going to call for a multi-pronged approach. And it's one that is made against the backdrop of a criminal legal system that's already experiencing crises of of legitimacy, right? A lot of the answers when it comes to making the legal system safe for neuroscience are really couched in the broader context of reforming that system so that it is producing better ends. If I could sum up the heart of many of the concerns that I have about the embrace of neuroscientific techniques in the legal system. It's that if you share the view that this system is already a tire fire of injustice in many ways, what I fear that we will do is bring this garden hose of neuroscience to that giant conflagration, turn it on, and expect it to douse the flames when in fact in the system as it currently operates, there's lots of reason to believe that it will be an accelerant.
3: That was Roland Nadler, PhD candidate studying the intersections of law, neuroscience and neuroethics in the legal system at UBC. Roland is also a darts and letters researcher and an all-around lovely person. Next up, we're looking at the gruesome history of mental illness, or madness, with historian Andrew Skull. More madness after this. Darts and Letters is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, a collective of progressive Canadian podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode, you might like Tech Won't Save Us, hosted by Paris Marx. In their own words... Tech Won't Save Us challenges the notion that tech alone can drive our world forward by showing that separating tech from politics has consequences for us all. Go check it out. New episodes every Thursday. Or go to support.harbingermedianetwork.com Andrew Skull is a historian of psychiatry. He's written a bunch of books on the subject, including Madness in Civilization. That's a history of madness that stretches all the way back to biblical times. So to start, I asked... What is madness?
2: Oh, yes. A very large and very difficult question to answer. I think fundamentally it's disturbances of cognition, of reasoning, and of emotion. And in some cases it's one of those three, and sometimes it's all three of those three which make people behave in ways that seem as though they don't belong in the same common sense universe as the rest of us. I think it's a violation of common sense in a double sense, common sense in the sense that we all think we understand the world in a similar fashion. And common sense is that person seems to have left that world The common way we sense the world has somehow gone awry. One of the recurrent ways in which mental illness has been interpreted has been that somebody has been possessed or that they're being punished by a deity or deities, uh, that they've had spells cast on them by witches or some variant of those things, and we can see that in the Hebrew Bible. You can see it when Saul disobeys the command of Yahweh and doesn't slaughter every single one of the tribe he's supposed to get rid of and is rewarded, according to the prophet Samuel, by being rendered mad. We often think of Hippocrates as a real person, and perhaps he was, but what we know him through is the writings of disciples, and Hippocratic medicine, as later interpreted by the Greek physician who was uh, the official doctor of a number of Roman emperors, Galen, saw forms of mental illness in what they thought of as a more naturalistic way. Very famously, with respect to epilepsy, Hippocrates is supposed to have said, It's not anything like that. It's from the brain that this emerges. Now, of course, that medical view revolved around a system that dominated Western medicine, more or less, into the 18th, perhaps even into the 19th century. And it was one that saw health, both physical and mental, as all part of the same disturbance or equilibrium of the body surrounding the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, yellow bile. And it was treated, mental or physical illness, with the same catch-all array of things that we're aware of, attempts to control somebody's regimen, their exercise, their sleep, bleedings, purgings, vomits, blisterings, all those things. At the end of the Roman Empire in the West, most of that knowledge got lost. Christianity came to the fore. The tendency was to reemphasize those metaphysical or um, God-given origins of this problem, whether you saw the problem as sin or possession. What happened to the older Greek traditions? The answer is they survived in the East originally in the Eastern Roman Empire, but then after the Islamic conquest of Constantinople and the Arabs spreading across North Africa into Spain to the fringes of France, they retained these and even developed them further. And so those old Galenic and Hippocratic understandings of madness in terms of the four humors survived there and began to re-enter Europe in the 10th and 11th centuries with the revival of urban culture as uh, the medieval period took hold. And so for a time, medical and supernatural accounts of madness sort of coexisted uneasily. And then gradually, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, the medical view becomes ever more prominent. As the authority of the humoral system decays and medicine becomes more obsessed with the laboratory and with trying to find other means of explaining disease, we see a different medical account of where mental illness comes from. In the 19th century, that process is taking place, so there's still some of the earlier bleeding and purging going on. But gradually, a different approach takes hold. And, and over time, medicine increasingly, for most part, comes to see mental illnesses rooted in the body and the brain. But there, of course, is a counter-narrative even within psychiatry, as represented most famously by Freud, which is a minority taste early in the 20th century. But in America and Buenos Aires, in the United States and Buenos Aires, psychoanalysis becomes the dominant voice in psychiatry from roughly the end of the Second World War until sometime in the 1970s, when very rapidly, rather like the Shah of Iran or the USSR, it goes from a position of dominance to collapse almost overnight and psychiatry swings back very heavily towards biology. Leon Eisenberg, who was a very famous professor at Harvard, summed this up, I think, extremely well and very neatly. He said, American psychiatry has gone from a brainless psychiatry to a mindless psychiatry. They sort of went all in on a kind of tick the boxes approach to diagnosis beginning in 1980 with the publication of the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And that was quickly linked up with the growing influence of the pharmaceutical industry within the profession, the development of ever more varied, well, not terribly varied, but many different brands of antidepressants and antipsychotics. The decision of the National Institutes of Mental Health, for example, to move away from its earlier emphasis on looking at the social and the psychological, as well as the um, somatic roots of mental illness, and to fund genetics and to fund neuroscience, and to assume that those would be the key that would solve the problem of, of where madness comes from and how to treat it. One of the themes that resonates all the way through the history I've looked at is the way in which stigma attaches to the mentally ill. And that means that on top of the suffering that mental turmoil causes, you've got this additional social ostracism and disdain and hatred. What happens when the asylum is born is there's a period of intense optimism. The, the people running these places think they've They finally understood that if we treat people humanely, if we coax them back to sanity, if we put them in an environment that's sheltered and welcoming, we can produce a return to something akin to normality. The very utopian expectations, we'll be able to cure 70 or 80% of patients. In reality, that turns out to be not true, or at least not replicable. And so in the last third of the 19th century, psychiatrists who have to explain why it is having promised they'd cure 70 or 80 percent, their cure rate seemed to be about hmm, 20 or 30 percent at best. And the answer is, in their eyes, the mentally ill are biologically different. They're defective. They no longer have any reason. They can't be treated as human beings. And ultimately, in the 20th century that leads, for example, in California, where I live, to a program of involuntarily sterilizing mental patients so they can't reproduce and add to their numbers. And then later in Nazi Germany, first to the adoption of compulsory sterilization, modeled explicitly on the California law, and then to what's called the T4 program, where Hitler authorizes the mass murder of mental patients and American, uh, and German psychiatrists by and large actively participate in killing about a quarter million or more mental patients. That's where the gas chamber is invented to kill them expeditiously and the technicians and the equipment is then relocated to the east to the death camps to fulfill the final solution.
3: Something I was thinking about when I was preparing for this interview, and I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this list that pops up every now and then on the internet, and it's, um purports to be reasons for admission to a lunatic asylum in the 1860s, and uh, it includes things like deranged masturbation, fits and desertion of husband, novel reading, bad company, politics.
2: Uh, extreme religion.
3: Yeah, that's one as well. And I wanted to find out if this was a real list, so I, I looked it up, and it, it is. But I was reading that apparently a lot of the reasons these might be used as justification that this person is mentally ill is that being admitted to an asylum gave the husband grounds for divorce. So I was thinking yeah. perhaps this isn't is this an early <laughs> example of mental illness being used in the justice system, like in the legal system? I yes, would say. yes.
2: Well, those fears about madhouses being wo- a device to get rid of an inconvenient person or to seize their assets. That has a very, very long history. There was a case of an aristocrat named Wyndham. He uh, was uh, a bit like Prince Andrew, I guess, in a way. He (laughs) He was the Lord Lieutenant of the local regiment, and he was very prominent. But he was drunk a lot of the time. His house was full of prostitutes. He openly flaunted this. He spent money in the most ridiculous fashion, and so the relatives, seeing all their all their potential resources being squandered, got two doctors to certify him as mad and put him in an asylum. And Wyndham fought that case, and other other psychiatrists, as we call them, but alienists, as they were called then testified at his trial. And on the one hand, there were those saying, oh, he's clearly mad, just look at the way he's behaving. And there were others saying, he's just eccentric and he should be free to spend as money as he likes, and he's not mad. And the jury found that he wasn't mad, and he went back to his house, his mansion, his (laughs) palace, uh, fornicated and drunk himself to death within a year.
3: I want you to tell me about the first known use of uh, mental illness in a legal setting.
2: Yes, what we might call the trial of the century. It was one that attracted over a thousand witnesses, many of them the ambassadors and the lords and ladies of, of England. Because the trial was at Westminster Hall and adjacent to the Houses of Parliament. And the jury were the House of Lords. This revolved around a murder which took place in 1760 by an aristocrat who was related to George II, a family that dated all the way back to the Norman Conquest. And this guy, Lord Ferrers, was prone to abuse alcohol, notoriously, savagely beat and sometimes crippled his servants if they disobeyed him or just displeased him married another member, really, of the gentry rather than the aristocracy, and then regretted it instantly, kept a mistress by whom he had several children, threatened his wife continuously, raped her, just a litany of abuse that persisted over several years. Till finally she managed to secure a private act of parliament to separate from him, and be paid maintenance allowance, alimony in our terms. He was convinced that this money was being stolen from him and it was being paid by a longtime family retainer who'd worked in the family for 30, 40 years as his steward. And one day, he sent all the other staff away, summoned this guy to his library, told him to get down on his knees, told him he was a thief and to say his prayers because he was going to shoot him and then he did. The guy took about two days dying, poor man. And during that time, Lord Ferrers ate, drank, and was merry. And then he tried to escape. And the servants and the surrounding villagers stopped him. He was taken to the Tower of London. He was tried in front of the House of Lords, and he pleaded insanity. And he called Dr. John Monroe, who was the physician to Bedlam, to testify on his behalf. Monroe had treated him. And Monroe was there as the very first time a doctor was called as an expert witness. And as the head of Bedlam, he was supposed to be the leading authority. There was a catch. In 18th century felony trials, you were not allowed to use a lawyer. They weren't having any Johnny Cochran's getting an O.J. Simpson off. If You must have quit if the glove doesn't fit, right? You had to defend yourself. So here's the anomalous situation. Lord Ferrers has to call Monroe as his witness and try to get the witness to testify that he's mad. But, of course, in putting on the defense, it undermines his very claim to be irrational. And he is convicted. He's sent to the tower. He thinks the king will commute his sentence because he's a relative. No dice. That was the first time an expert witness appeared And it didn't succeed, which is often the case.
3: That was Andrew Skull, historian and author of Madness in Civilization, The Cultural History of Insanity. He also has a book coming out soon called Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness. Links in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. I'm your lead producer, Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudon. The lead research assistant for this episode was Roland Nadler. Our theme song and outro is by Mike Barber. Graphic designs by Dakota Coop. Your usual host and the show's editor is Gordon Katick. You can send us feedback by emailing us, darts at citedmedia.ca, or you can tweet us at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we're backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This episode also received support by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, which is funding our mini-series on the state of forensic science. The scholarly lead on that project is Professor Emma Cunliffe. We're also supported by our patrons, patreon.com forward slash darts and letters to become one of them. Thanks for listening. Check back in next Friday when managing producer Mark Apollonia will be hosting.